Aloha, North Kohala and beyond. Welcome to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm Holly Allgood. I'll be your host today. And our very special guest is Dr. Ann Roberts. She's a clinical psychologist, and she's here to share some of her life stories with us today. Welcome, Ann. Thank you. So tell us, where did you grow up, and what was your growing up like? Well, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City, and um, I had a mom and dad and an older brother, and um, we went away summers to a little, little town in the western part of Massachusetts called Richmond. And I, uh, I basically liked the country much more than I cared for the city, but there was a lot that the city had to offer, particularly as I got older. My father was a lawyer, and my mother had been an opera singer, but she switched to being a teacher and then being a homemaker. Well, that's quite a lot of things going on in your family there. Were you encouraged to get a good education when you were a child? Yes, education was very important to my family. We talked a lot. We read a lot. Um, we discussed things over the dinner table. We always had dinner together, and I loved school. Well, that's good. And so going to college was just an assumption, it sounds like. It was an assumption. Mm -hmm. but. Um, what happened was I was very slow to learn to read. I didn't learn to read until third grade. And I loved hearing stories in books. And when I finally began reading, I was so thrilled. And it, um, it was really wonderful. But the public schools were kind of places where you could get lost as a student. Especially in New York City. In, in New York, yes, and at that time. And my parents had sent my brother, who was two years older than I, to private school. And for seventh grade, my parents decided that I could go to private school also. And that was a wonderful and transformative experience for me. Where was the private school? They were in Riverdale. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a school called Fieldston, mm -hmm. which is run by the Ethical Culture Society, mm. which is a um, humanist group, mm -hmm. and we had um, just a wonderful campus. Uh, we had to travel, my brother and I, on the subway up to school, and we had to go downtown first in rush hour, so he developed a method of how to push to get us on the train, and then <laughs> we had to figure out how to get to the other side of the train to exit to get our uptown train, but um, it was all worth it, and uh, the school had beautiful facilities. It had a lot of sports, which I was very, very interested in. I was very sports-minded and outdoorsy, and uh, I just loved it. And what did you do after you graduated from there? I went to Cornell, which again is uh, in upstate New York, and it has a beautiful, beautiful campus. And um, it's also a university, and many of the schools on the campus are a variety of state-sponsored schools as well as the College of Arts and Sciences, which is where I attended, and I studied psychology. So you studied psychology right out of high school as soon as you went to college? Yes, although I was very interested in psychology as thinking and feeling, and the psychology department at Cornell was um, psychology of perception and sensation, and um, it was 
based on a lot of um, experimental work, and uh, there weren't that many courses in, um, in psychology, and the ones that they had, the one I remember best, was um, a course in uh, behavior. And so to do that, we studied sheep, and we um, tried to teach a sheep to discriminate between a circle and a square, and then what would happen when you merged the two so that an animal couldn't tell the difference. So they would get a mild shock, which obviously we wouldn't do today, when uh, the animal saw a circle, and they would get food when they saw a square, and then they had a nervous breakdown when they couldn't tell the difference. Uh, so really, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and the first part of the class, you spent an hour trying to catch the sheep in the field. <laughs> yeah. And what happened uh, after you graduated from Cornell? Well, um, I got married um, to a man that I had met in high school. And um, we, he had a Fulbright, so we went to England for a year. And then we came back and we both went to graduate school. I went to Boston University and he uh, studied, psycho studied psychology, which had the kind of psychology department that I really wanted and needed. And uh, he studied economics. Wonderful. And then when you, did you graduate from Boston University? Yes, I, but um, he graduated reasonably fast. I had three children by the time I graduated. Oh my goodness. And got my PhD. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Um, well, uh, then we worked, I mm -hmm. guess. Uh, you know, we, we both worked. We mm -hmm. both, um, I, I was very lucky in that he was a man who valued my intelligence and my work. Mm. And he participated in the household mm -hmm. tasks and running. So I worked um, probably two days a week, 10 hours a day, and had a commute. And he would do dinner, he would cook, he would clean up, he would get the children to bed. Um, by the time I came home, he would have dinner for me. And on the days when he worked late or he came home, I cooked and did all of those uh, household things. So a very modern family. Yes, and that was in the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s, early 70s. Yeah, so that was quite a while ago. Did you get any flack from friends? No, um, most of my friends were also working. They were friends from high school and from college. And I think we all grew up with the assumption that we would continue to use our intelligence and our minds and uh, our skills um, to work and also to raise families. And there was kind of an assumption at that time that you could do it all and you could find a way. And I think uh, people found a way in various ways with uh, depending on the kind of families that they had and how easy it was. And it's not easy for everybody to do that. You really have to have the help of a partner. Yes. So also, share with our audience, what is it that a clinical psychologist does? Well, a clinical psychologist does various kinds of what's called therapy. And that involves, again, thinking and feeling and understanding and listening. It's really being a good listener and then thinking how to draw a person out 
in ways that will help them develop self-understanding. So my, I had two careers, essentially. My first career was as an individual therapist in a group practice, and I focused on family and young children. So I could work with children as young as two years old who had had some kind of a trauma, for example, or behavior irregularities, and um, worked with them through play and drawing. And I worked with the family in developing understanding and parenting patterns that would be successful with the child. Oh, isn't uh, that interesting? So you did, can you tell us a little bit about play therapy? So play therapy is a way of helping children who can't express themselves well verbally initially um, begin to do so while they're distracted by play. But play also can be very focused on the problem. Um, so for example, with a two-year-old, I had a two-year-old who'd had a traumatic experience in a store where she had pulled some very heavy objects down around her and she had not been physically injured but she would have nightmares and was screaming and crying and mm -hmm. wouldn't go into stores with her parents and um, they brought her to see me and we did a lot of drawing so I would draw and she would scribble over it and we would be caging the various objects that had fallen and within six weeks she was better Mm, so, that's wonderful. You know, she progressed mm -hmm. to doing the drawings herself, to locking them up. She didn't have to scribble them out completely. She could just make chains around the, mm -hmm. around the cages, and mm -hmm. the therapy progressed that way. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. And how long did you do that? I did that for 20 years as my sole focus. But then um, I also started doing some evaluations for a school for children with autism. And I was invited to uh, become the psychologist for the school. They didn't have one. They were a program from Japan. And the teacher was supposed to fulfill all functions. But uh, they came to the United States in um, 1984. And they began to realize, uh, the executive director began to realize that there were resources within the United States that did things somewhat differently and that there was some advantage to taking um, advantage of that expertise. And he had been someone I had known from my previous work, um, which had sometimes involved consultation to school programs. Mm -hmm. And so he invited me to um, become a psychologist part-time mm -hmm. at the school, the Boston Higashi School. Mm -hmm. And I did that, uh, but kept my practice, but then I began to work there more and reduce my practice. And at one point I was working there full time and having an evening practice, and then I gradually phased that out. And I was at Higashi for 20 years also. Mm. So a really nice long career you've had. And can you tell us something about how you do assessments or what they are? So um, an assessment can be a variety of things depending on what's requested. And usually they're done by request of someone. It can be a parent, it can be a school district, um, it could be a particular teacher, but the family usually brings the child or the child can be assessed at the school district if the school is requesting it. 
and sometimes it involves cognitive assessments, which mean basically IQ testing, um, but it also means more than that because it's reasoning ability and it's um, abstract thinking and it's speed and it's uh, word processing and so on. Um, and then what we call personality assessment, which is to assess how a child's feeling and how their thinking influences their feeling. So there are tests where the aim is pretty obvious. You can ask a set of questions to a child and get self-report. You can also do tests where the child doesn't really know what is going on and what you're looking at, um, such as the Rorschach test, which is a set of ink blots, where you show a child an ink blot and say, what do they look like? And so the child gives you their thoughts. And there are also tests with pictures that show scenarios. And then the child might, um, or, the, or an adult, these are similar tests, but uh, different versions for children and adults, might tell a story. And you ask them to tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the story they make up reveals certain things about what their fears or worries or likes or dislikes or problems are. And you can work from that. So in the school system, the school might request an assessment if the child isn't learning as they anticipate or that has problematic behavior? That's right, both. Um, a lot of the testing for that often revolves around attention. And uh, there are two types of attention deficits. There's um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is ADHD, and just attention deficit disorder, which doesn't involve hyperactivity, um, more kind of a lack of focus. And both of those can be assessed through tests, questionnaires, behavioral observations, which is often a very big part of an assessment as well. And uh, so I know a lot of people are saying it seems like uh, ADHD is on the rise. Was that your experience, or what, what do you think about that? I, I didn't necessarily have that impression for ADHD. I think for all of the behavioral difficulties that children experience, that we became more aware of them and our assessments became more acute. Also, I think some problems, for example, with autism, people kept those problems at home so that a child who might have a great deal of difficulty might be schooled at home. They might be the uncle who never could get it together to work, but who could work around the house. And it wasn't necessarily apparent within the school setting. Mm -hmm. But I think as knowledge grew about how to, do, how to understand different syndromes, as medicine um, expanded to be able to do certain treatments in coordination with therapy, that we began to see more and our diagnoses changed uh, too. We used to focus a lot on what we called mental retardation and now call it intellectual disability. And um, a lot of that has now shifted to be called autism. And the autism spectrum has become very broad. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the autism spectrum? Well, autism was first identified by um, a man named Kanner in, I think, 1953. 
And he was in, actually in Baltimore, which is where I now live. And uh, he described a set of symptoms that involved uh, cognitive disability, emotional dysregulation, and um, sometimes physical difficulties as well. Or attributes. At, yes. And um, he, within each of those, he had a number of different categories. For example, under um, cognitive, he had um, social disability and, and emotional, and under behavioral disability, he had um, a failure to make eye contact, um, um, failure to understand uh, what others were saying by gesture or by looking, um, failure to internalize um, information that wasn't directly taught. So there were a, a variety of categories. And um, a couple of years later in Germany, Hans Asperger um, identified what was then became known as Asperger's syndrome, which really was a high-functioning type of autism. Um, which involved um, children maybe being even hyperlexic, which is uh, hyper-reading, hyper-speaking, um, talking like a little professor, being very, um, very cognitively aware, but not necessarily connecting that with meaning or reasoning mm -hmm. skills. Mm -hmm. uh, and over the years, we have had something called the DSM, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual, which for many, many disorders and diseases has codified the criteria. And that has been revised numerous times. And the latest one, um, I, I believe it's DSM-5R, is um, the one that made um, the concept of a spectrum without differentiating types, and that's when the term Asperger's dropped out. And we see that everybody, even typical people, can have many of the same traits individually as individuals that we call autistic, and they're not necessarily um, a difficulty unless they cause difficulty for the individual in their functioning. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing is really this is a fairly new area of knowledge. It's, it's growing. It's yeah. growing all the time. It, mm -hmm. um, when I was in graduate school, even in college to some extent, it was felt that autism was caused by what they called refrigerator mothers. Mm -hmm. And that was based on a study by a man named Harlow who had done a study with monkeys who were raised by warm mothers and those who were raised by wire mothers. Mm. And those who had affection and cuddling and closeness developed typically, and those who were raised by the wire mothers, who were obviously not interactive, developed abnormally and had a lot of social withdrawal and anxiety and behavioral dysregulation mm -hmm. for, for a monkey. Mm -hmm. And so that concept was the prevalent concept um, while I was being in school, but has since been completely disproven. It has. As a, yes. Mm -hmm. The cause is, there, there seem to be many mm -hmm. different causes, but it's 
to some extent, a, gen a, a genetic um, disability, some of which have been particularly identified. So some individuals who used to be called autistic now have specific terms associated with them as specific genes have been identified. But for many others, that is not yet the case, although it may become the case. And uh, a variety of factors or attributes have been shown to be um, maybe associated, correlated with the development of autism. So autism is in some sense an actualization of maybe a set of predispositions which become actualized in certain situations and environments. So was the school you were at for the, for the last 20 years of your career, was that a school for autistic children? Yes, from age three to age 22, because um, although not all states, but in Massachusetts, the age when education, special education, uh, is considered to be finished is age 22. Uh, mm -hmm. Some states it's 21, but um, in, in several states it's also 22. So that's quite a span. It's a big span, and mm -hmm. we had students from all of those ages mm -hmm. at the school. And would they typically stay there for, for many years? It really depended on the severity of the disability and the age at which they entered. Mm -hmm. So many of the three, four, five-year-olds that we saw were able to improve enough to go back to collaboratives, which are uh, groupings of schools that get together to form a special education situation from that draws from multiple districts, mm -hmm. um, or even to be mainstreamed occasionally within mm -hmm. their typical school populations mm -hmm. with an aide often and then sometimes even independently. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the children that we saw or youngsters, um, particularly those who entered um, during early adolescence and even late puberty, 10 years old and so on, remained at the school because their behaviors were too difficult for a school system to manage and still manage the education of other students. Mm -hmm. And that largely had to do with behavioral dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So can uh, so how was this school able to handle them? Well, this school is um, a very different uh, philosophy and program than many programs, and it comes from Japan. And Japan has a number of factors in their educational philosophy and system which seem to work very well with autistic students. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, the education is based on three foundation principles, vigorous physical education, emotional relationships and stability, and um, intellectual stimulation for a youngster at their appropriate age and at their appropriate level of development. So the, um, the vigorous physical education involves uh, daily jogging in the morning. And the teachers, as they do in Japan, do everything with their students. So the teachers have to jog as well. Mm 
So everybody's in great shape. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> but <sounds> good. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to start off getting a child to jog. So you put a cone in one spot, and then a little ways away, you put a cone in another spot, and the teacher is holding the child's hand, and we're going to jog together. So again, you see immediately you have the emotional connection that you're not here alone, but we're doing this together. Mm-hmm. And whatever you do and need, I will also do and need. And they jog from here to here. And then a week later, they might they move the cone. And so gradually, they're getting so that the child can do that. And that creates a tremendous sense of accomplishment and pride. Even for nonverbal children, you can see it in their faces. Mm-hmm. So you know that they know they've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. And that sense of accomplishing something can then transfer to other learning and other tasks. Mm-hmm. It also, as jogging does for many people, it either upregulates or downregulates. So some students with autism are very hyperactive, they're very anxious, and jogging helps them calm down, and then they're able to sit and focus more in a classroom. For some students, they're very sluggish and lethargic and don't seem at all focused or interested in the world. And jogging helps them wake up and gets their systems all going. And then Mm -hmm. they're better able Mm -hmm. to sit and focus in a class. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a a very useful kind of uh, methodology in that sense. And the emotional connection with the teachers, the teacher is is so important. The teachers um, really work to understand the child and to communicate a very consistent approach to the child so that the child begins to learn they can count on what the teacher is going to do regardless of their behavior. So while it doesn't mean everything is accepted because you have to teach children what's right and what's not right, it means that it's done in a way which is very supportive and very consistent. And there's something that we use called basic postures, which is ways of controlling your body. And that's very helpful in controlling your emotions. So um, there's a way to sit with your chair pulled into your desk, your feet flat on the floor, your hands on your knees, and your head up and facing forward. And students are reminded of this all the time. When they stand up and they're just waiting, they're at what we call an at-ease posture, which means feet slightly spread apart, hands clasped behind the back, very comfortable to wait and listen. And then the teacher might say, attention. And that means, okay, it's time to look at me. And because I'm going to say something important to you. And so we teach that. So we teach that focus. And then the other is a pose that is used for self-calming. And that's sitting on the floor and pulling your knees up and wrapping your arms tightly around your own knees. And that's a way of controlling yourself so that somebody else isn't controlling you when you're out of behavioral control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And it sounds like, so probably consistency, would you also (laughs) recommend that for parents of children who aren't necessarily? Consistency, structure, Mm -hmm. um, understanding what the child's behavior means to the child so that it can be addressed in a different way. And as I said, 
physical activity because children need a lot of ways of expressing their energy and getting that out and uh, controlling themselves because really what we're teaching is Mm self-regulation, not Mm -hmm. regulation by outside forces, not regulation by rewards and consequences, but regulation by learning to control yourself. Mm -hmm. But I I had a friend who is uh, very high functioning on the autism spectrum who was doing his PhD and doing some work at the school for that. And he interviewed me and asked me, what would happen if autism were cured? What would happen to your school? And I said, well, we could continue to teach because our methods are just as applicable to typical children Mm -hmm. as they are for children with autism. Because children with autism are just children Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who happen to have autism as a part of them. Mm -hmm. How large was the school? Um, We have had between 180 to 200 kids Mm. um, at at any one time. Mm -hmm. About um, maybe two-thirds of them are residential and a third of them are day students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a wonderful program. I I really love the program. Yeah, and does expand in the country or is that the only school like it? That that school, there's a school in Japan and for a time we had uh, worked with a school in England that wanted to develop that methodology and had come quite a long ways in doing that. We visited several times and we exchanged, had teacher exchanges and so on. Um, but then the school was bought privately um, and we weren't able to continue working with them. And is the school ongoing still today? Oh yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an international school. We have children from all over the world mm. attending and from all parts of the United States. Mm-hmm. And typically they're paid for by their school systems or their mm-hmm. governments. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear about this school. Uh, this is, you're listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR. LP 96.1 FM Kohala. Our special guest today is Dr. Ann Roberts. We will be back in a few minutes. Are you looking for more locally grown farm fresh produce in your life? Kohala Food Hub is offering farm fresh food subscriptions to North Kohala residents. Abundant bags of organically grown fruits and veggies are available every Wednesday for doorstep delivery or pickup in Javi. By subscribing to our Farm Fresh Food program, you not only bring healthy food to your table, you also support local farmers. To learn more or subscribe, email director at kohalafoodhub.com or call 808-896-3179. You can also visit kohalafoodhub.com to shop our online farmer's marketplace, open Fridays through Mondays. We hope to serve you soon. Great goddess I am, so thankful to have you guiding me, protecting me I am, so thankful to have Aloha Kohala, this is Isla Allgood of Women's Voices. Change is in the air. Women's Voices will now be once a week, every Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. I hope you can tune in to KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala and listen to sensational songs by female artists from right here in Kohala and around the world. Protecting me, I am so thankful to have you guiding me, protecting me, I am.
The Koala Night Market returns on Wednesday, January 4th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Koala Village Hub. The community is invited to shop locally produced food and crafts and to enjoy music by DJ Lou Creative. It will be a night of dancing and celebration for the new year. Also, food trucks will be cooking up some local grinds, and Radio KNKR will be there live, broadcasting from the market. You can stop by our table and meet some of the DJs. That's the Kohala Night Market on Wednesday, December 7th, from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Kohala Village Hub. See you there. Welcome to Tutu's Talk Story. This is your host, Holly Allgood, here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm here today with Dr. Ann Roberts, and she has been telling us about this fascinating school that originated in Japan that uh, she was at for over 20 years in Boston that focused on helping uh, autistic children. And can you tell us that you were there a long time? How did the school change over the time you were there? Well, interestingly, I didn't start at the school right at the very beginning. The school was started by a woman called Dr. Kito Kirahara, and um, she, de- she developed this program in Japan in the 1960s, and uh, so there were some families that discovered this program from the United States that sent their children over to Japan to be educated by her. She was a kindergarten teacher, um, and she decided when she got an autistic child into her classroom that she would basically have the child live with her and be someone that she would learn to teach and get to learn. And she developed her methodology through this process. And then other people started to bring their children to her. Uh, Japan um, has a very particular education system of their own where the classes are quite large and they teach in groups. So they teach choral speaking, choral reciting. And for a long time in America, this has seemed like not a particularly good way to teach because we're a very individualistic society. But it has certain advantages for children with autism particularly. And um, you may know if you're asked to stand up and speak before a group by yourself, you may get a little tongue-tied and nervous and feel a little bit anxious. Um, But if everyone says, class stand up, I'd like you to all recite this poem. Even if you don't exactly know all the words, you can participate, you can get clues from the person on your right or the person on your left, and you can feel like you've done it and participated, particularly if a teacher then says, everybody, great job. So this methodology transferred particularly well to children with autism because they have trouble understanding social situations and what's going on around them and how to respond. But if they can look at someone else who maybe knows how to do this a little better, that other person might look at them in a ball game and see how to skip. And oh, you bounce on your feet this way. So it's not that one child can be better than another, but in some areas, one child can support another, and in another area, this child may support someone else. And so this was a very 
unique and good methodology for teaching children with autism. In addition, the, um, the physical activity, the emotional activity, and the what we call intellectual, or maybe more even feeling spiritual activity, mind, body, soul, is a philosophy in Japan that translated very well into the three principles of education for children with autism. Dr. Kitahara's program was viewed by uh, Dr. Jerome Kagan, who was a professor at Harvard, and he invited her to come to the United States and talk about her program, and then ultimately um, uh, Kitty and Michael Dukakis in Massachusetts, who, where Dr. Kagan also taught, invited her to start a school. And so that's how the program came to the United States. Dr. Kitahara felt also that the children from America who were in Japan would benefit from being closer to their families and being in their own more compatible environment. And so the school got started in the United States. But it was started with largely Japanese teachers. So she brought over with her an entire school of staff. And the teachers, the sensei, as they're called in Japan, did everything for and with the students. They had Saturday school where the students would continue their learning because it was felt that any break in the school time would be detrimental and you'd have to go back and start a little bit over because it took an enormous amount of repetition for something to be learned. And she was very, very patient. Unfortunately, she passed away, um, I think 1978, very soon after coming, three years, I believe, after coming mm -hmm. to America. Um, and um, Robert Fantasia took over as the director of the school. He had been her assistant whom she'd hired. They had also hired some American staff and were training them in the meantime. And um, he was an absolutely fabulous person for helping the school grow and change and making sure that it got established firmly in the United States because people at first were very skeptical of the school and its methodologies. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the school changed and developed under him in many, many ways. Were you hired under him? I was hired under him. I had known him from my private practice work. Um, I consulted for some of the special needs programs in various elementary schools that he um, ran as a director of the Lakeville School District in Massachusetts. And what other, how, how did other programs change during your time there? Well, so when he hired me, there were no um, specialists at the school. Everything was done by the teachers. And when I first started, uh, people were very skeptical about my coming in. I was an outsider. What was I going to say about the school? But I came in initially to do evaluations, not, um, not hired in that sense. And... I observed and I talked to teachers and um, I educated myself. I was, had always been interested in autism and actually had worked in a program in my internship uh, with students with autism. And um, teachers began after a while to feel like it was okay to allow me in their classrooms. First teacher I worked with wouldn't allow me in. I could only observe in joint programs. So there are classroom programs, there are division programs, there are whole school programs. He only wanted me to observe in a 
whole school were a joint program. He wouldn't let me in the classroom. We're all afraid of being judged, huh? Everybody is nervous about that. And um, they were also afraid, I think, of being misinterpreted because their methodology, again, was so different from the typical methodology of education in the United States. Um, And so um, Mr. Fantasia was very helpful (laughs) in getting me in the classrooms. And gradually, I developed trust with them. And then um, the place where I had been working was closing. Uh, In in the, the group practice, there were some personal things that had been going on with the person who was directing that program. And so um, Mr. Fantasia said, how would I like to work at Higashi? And I said, I would love to work at Higashi. (laughs) So I I started there four days a week and kept my private practice, which I switched to another group one day a week. And um, after I'd worked there for a while, over the year that uh, I was doing five days worth of work and four days worth of pay. And um, they said, why don't you work five days? <laughs> and so that was wonderful. And as I say, I loved being there. In fact, I, um, when I was hired, the, the next holiday was Veterans Day. And I spent the whole day walking around saying, I'm working, I'm getting paid for today, but I'm not working. Because in private practice, it's only- You don't get paid for, for It's called fee for service. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the other thing that people found very strange about me, but which continued, was I loved meetings. <laughs> because I, w- and everybody says, oh God, a meeting. And I would say, oh, a meeting. And I loved it because you got to talk with your colleagues and you got to learn so much and share so much. And it was, it, to me, it was just so beneficial and so much fun to, to do that. And I continued to always enjoy meetings, some more than others, but. I and that was something missing from the group practice. That's something missing from the group practice. We had individual meetings with each other. We occasionally had a group get together, but it wasn't so much a meeting. And these were substantive meetings that discussed issues both with students and with program. And so everybody could learn a lot and participate a lot. And as I said, we had the residents, and we had residential meetings, and we had day meetings. I initially went to the day meetings, then I was also able to go to the residential meetings, um, and and I just found meetings very fruitful. Well, and it sounds like it gave you an opportunity to have a more holistic view of the students. Yes, and and also for teachers to get to know me, Mm -hmm. who might otherwise not have gotten to know me, and then to more readily communicate and initiate communication with Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. when they had something that they felt needed to be uh, done. Mm -hmm. I was also able to bring in other clinicians and start a clinical program. Mm -hmm. And that was wonderful. And that was something that, again, took time to realize by people. But one of the teachers who had been working there went on to become a speech and language pathologist. And it seems like a good idea to have her actually be a speech and language pathologist at the school when she'd finished that training. Mm-hmm. And so we had a speech and language pathologist, and then that grew, so we would have one for each division. Similarly, um, one of the teachers had had an occupational therapy degree, it was called OT, and um, she was teaching because there was no s- slot for her. And we thought, well, why not have some occupational therapy added to our program, and then physical therapy. So we ended up with a clinical team Mm -hmm. that um, 
had ultimately about 12 people. Mm -hmm. um, then we also ended up by having case managers, and that uh, was um, the principal's idea. We had a wonderful, wonderful principal who's just retired. Mm -hmm. Her name is Deb Donovan. Mm -hmm. And um, she really advocated for uh, adding case managers, and we were able to add case managers, three case managers, one for each of the major divisions. And um, that also was wonderful because although teachers were initially concerned that they wouldn't have as much direct communication with parents as they'd been used to, that was not the focus. The focus was on helping clarify communications, being available when teachers were busy teaching, um, setting up uh, appointments for kids, taking them to appointments, developing other kinds of relationships with parents and families, um, not at all impinging on what the teachers were doing, but assisting. And what, what would be the function of the specialists? So the specialists had, except for the case managers, the other clinical specialists had two functions. One function was providing services and evaluations for students as needed. And in, that, in that particular field, like if it was in physical therapy or? That's correct, in mm -hmm. their particular field. Mm -hmm. and, but it was also, and 50% of their time was spent within the classrooms. And it was modeling and teaching the teachers how to provide those services to the students on an ongoing basis 24-7. Mm -hmm. So that it wasn't just you get 30 minutes of speech therapy twice a week. Mm -hmm. It was that every interaction you're doing during the day has a speech therapy component to it. Mm. Because the teachers understood how that was being and delivered to the students. Mm -hmm. Same thing with OT. Mm -hmm. Those exercises that could be done could be done in groups as easily, maybe more easily actually, than with individual students. Mm -hmm. And teachers all learned, okay, let's do a warm-up exercise before talking. We're gonna rub our cheeks. We're going to stretch our arms. We're going to flap our fingers. And of course, some of these activities are, are natural. So the kids jumping up and down and flapping. They're being encouraged to jump up and down and flap, mm -hmm. get it out of their system, mm -hmm. use it as a warm-up. Mm -hmm. And then they were able to focus on More. actually doing the lesson. Mm -hmm. But the, te the, the clinical clinicians were also in the classroom modeling how to do it mm -hmm. and supporting the teachers in doing it. Mm -hmm. And also within the classroom, classes were small, um, maybe five, six students, a bigger for older groups of students where they could be up to 10 or 12. But there was a teacher teaching, it could be the clinician. There was the teacher who would either be teaching or supporting. And then there would be an assistant who would usually be one of the special subject teachers, which I haven't mentioned before, but I'll, I'll get to that, who would come in and s support behaviorally as well. So that if a child needed to be taken out to the bathroom, it didn't disrupt the rest of the group. That child could go with the teacher and mm -hmm. come back, get changed if necessary, whatever, mm -hmm. or with the assistant. Mm -hmm. um, the way the assistants worked, the, the program itself, uh, which is also something that is true in Japan, is that what we call special subjects are taught as importantly as academic subjects. And this is particularly important for students with autism because they have talents and skills in areas other than 
cognitive functioning and language functioning. Mm -hmm. So there would be music specialists, um, art specialists, technology, computer technology specialists, um, and PE teachers, each of whom had degrees in their fields. And they would be, there would be a different set of those specialists for each division. And those subjects were taught as subjects. So you could have PE five times a week. In addition to the jogging, you could have art five times a week and so on. So it was, the program was very, very full. The music program was phenomenal. We had a jazz band that, um, for the older students, like middle school and high school, that played at concerts, that played at conferences, that um, traveled to Japan and played with groups from Japan. They would join, they would learn songs together and music together, and then they would join in. We had a wonderful chorus um, of, of students who could really sing. Um, uh, we had some students who were very artistically talented. So um, it, it, it was a very complimentary program. And those teachers, too, had the benefit of the clinical services. We would observe in those classes. We would um, see if students' behavior was different in a different setting, and that would be part of the evaluation process that I would do um, and that other teachers would do. We had a reading specialist who uh, went to a lot of conferences and, and learned methods of teaching reading to students and would experiment with, with what worked. We had word walls that when a student, would, students were taught a new word, the word would go up on the word wall and then it would be referred to and pointed to. Um, a student could point to a word, not say it. Um, we had teachers who really would, could work with the, what we called AAC devices, which are augmentative communication um, devices, and um, students learned how to uh, use them to communicate their wants and needs, uh, sometimes their feelings. Um, so all of those, th all of those aspects were different. We also started, I started with another um, of the, of the um, teachers there, um, a sibling program. So we um, had st students come who were uh, siblings of the autistic students three times a year. We developed this into a, a very regular program. The first time it would be around Christmas and we would make gingerbread houses together and play games so that the students could get to know each other, sit in a circle and talk about what it was like to have an autistic child within the family mm -hmm. and the pluses and the difficulties. Mm -hmm. um, we had another session that was just for the st students where we taught them strategies to interact with their sibling. Mm -hmm. So they, um, and, and we taught them first and then we had the siblings come into the gym and they would practice. Mm -hmm. And those were so successful that they ultimately said we, the, the siblings suggested that we run those for parents. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, <laughs> so, so we did. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was um, a field day mm -hmm. at the end of the year where um, siblings and students would play games together. Uh, we had a lot of ga gym games that we played that were cooperative games, three-legged races, um, 
Yeah, where you pull on a a rope from different sides. Tug of war. Yeah, tug of war. Parents would participate. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had those kinds of activities. Mm -hmm. The school itself also had many kinds of activities that, again, came from Japan, such as sports day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Sports Day, for example, had those some of those activities, um, activities where you would pass a big, a huge, one of those um, medicine ball type things that they mm-hmm. use in gyms mm-hmm. these days, mm-hmm. very light, weight back over their heads, and then the last person who got it would run up to the front, and they had to <laughs> cycle it again, and they'd do it by class, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you'd have winners. We had a road race mm-hmm. um, for students, um, and uh, it was different lengths for different ages, and everybody could participate, mm-hmm. and we had winners with trophies, and again, kids understood when they had done well. It was sometimes hard to get students who had learned to jog to learn to race. Mm-hmm. Uh, some kids got it, and mm-hmm. some didn't. Mm-hmm. So some were really fast and really motivated, and again, you could see that motivation. I'm going to win this year. Mm-hmm. And um, others, you know, trotted around. Yeah. But it was all good and all fun and all mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. And some of the students then went on to do community road races, mm-hmm. 5Ks, mm-hmm. um, and, and had a lot of fun. And they're still doing it to mm-hmm. this day in their group homes mm-hmm. because we teach the group homes how to carry on the methodology from Higashi, mm-hmm. which is called daily life therapy, by the way. I hadn't mentioned that, but that's, mm-hmm. what, it's, that's what it's called. So it sounds like when some, some of the students graduate or leave, they would go into group homes? Most. Most do. Go into group homes, yeah. yeah. Um, students as severe as ours on the spectrum, um, whether they're day or residential students, need the continual practice to maintain mm-hmm. the habits Mm-hmm. of behavior, reduced anxiety, mm-hmm. um, physical activity, mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. All of our students work at the community, mm-hmm. regardless of how they first came into Higashi. Mm-hmm. They're able to do that. Um, we have a wonderful e- uh, employment education program that was started under uh, uh, Rosemary Bailey, who was at one time the um, director, uh, and education director, and... Um, um, so no, I'm CEO, I think she was. Uh, and um, she started a very vibrant um, edu- uh, education program for um, employment education for our older students. But our, even our younger students learn those things because uh, they all, for example, when you stand up, push in your chair. That was taught. and. Students automatically at Higashi push in their chairs, and teachers automatically at Higashi push in their chairs. It's polite. Nobody trips over your chair. I automatically push in my chair now. <laughs> but you'd be amazed. Mm-hmm. Most people don't. Yes. Um, so those things have to be reinforced. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we had a lot of events that were uh, stage performances. We had um, a winter music celebration that was acting and singing, and then there's a play that the students do. So, so uh, you've, you've, uh, you've been a wonderful advocate of this program, and it sounds like you were very involved in making it as successful as it was. I'm sure some people out there are wondering, how do I learn more about this program? Could you tell us, again, how to spell the name and if there's a website they could go to? Uh, there, there absolutely is. It's mm-hmm. called the Boston Higashi School. Mm-hmm. That's H-I-G 
A-S-H-I, and uh, it definitely has a, has a website, mm-hmm. um, has a phone number. Well, and I'm that. sure if people Google that, they'll find it. They'll, they'll get it. Yeah. We, all, we have a student from Hawaii who's currently attending the school. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like from all over the world. Well, you've been a wealth of information about that, and, and I'd like to get back to you for a while okay. because it sounds like you've had quite a full life, and I'm wondering if you have any last words of wisdom or principles that you live by, not just for uh, people with, uh, or, for anybody, for but, anybody autistic yeah. or not. Well, I've always enjoyed my work, and um, it was very hard to retire. I, I'm enjoying retirement now, but I, I love being productive, uh, being with people, doing things that were helpful to others, and um, I love being a mother, being with my children. I love the flexibility early on of my career, which allowed me that flexibility. So I think you have to find ways to do all the things that you want to do. And do what you love, it sounds like. Do you've it, you've had you the want. opportunity to do really what you love doing. Yes, I, I've been very lucky that way. And I've, I've had a lot of support mm-hmm. from my family and from uh, the people I've worked with, uh, the people I've worked with. You know, a lot of the things at the school weren't me. They were the teachers who were the bedrock of the school, mm-hmm. and um, I was just a help to mm-hmm. them. But um, doing things with others and having those relationships is hugely important and very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Again, this is Holly Allgood hosting Tutu's Talk Story. Our very special guest today was Dr. Ann Roberts, and such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed being here. Aloha, and we'll see you next month.